returning in our Bibles, please, to the book of Philippians. We're returning to our series, The Pursuit of Joy. And we're turning to the chapter 2, to where we left off in the verse 12. Philippians, and the chapter 2. And we're turning back to the verse 12. We're finally getting back to Philippians. And Lord willing, we'll keep at it. And some lovely verses ahead to glean from, to learn from, to challenge us. Uh, I trust that indeed as we come back to the book of Philippians today that we'll be challenged from what we read in these verses today. I would like to speak to you today under the title Godly Discipline. Godly Discipline. And we're coming here to Philippians chapter 2 and the verse 12. And let's read together. This is the word of the Lord. It is Paul writing, of course, to the church in Philippi. And he says this, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputes, <coughs> that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither laboured in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy, and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice. With me. We trust the Lord will bless the reading of His Word to each of our hearts this afternoon. Godly discipline. Discipline is a very important word uh, when it comes to describing the walk of the child of God. You see, it highlights the element of man's responsibility that's found in Scripture. We believe that God is sovereign, but He hasn't made us to be robots. We have responsibility to be disciplined in our walk with him. And so often these days we find that discipline in the walk of the Christian is lacking. And we live in a day when many Christians seem to think that anything goes. Yet it's very clear that you and I, those of us who have been to the cross by faith and placed our trust in Christ as our Saviour, we have a responsibility to walk with the Lord <coughs> in the light of his word. Bobby Knight is a former basketball coach from the United States of America. And he defines the word discipline like this. He says this, Discipline is doing what needs to be done, doing it when it needs to be done, doing it the best it needs to be done, and doing that every single time. I thought that was a great definition of discipline. Discipline is doing what needs to be done, doing it when it needs to be done, Doing it the best it needs to be done, and doing this every single time. Another person has said this. They said, I believe in discipline. You can forgive in competence, you can forgive in ability, but one thing you can't forgive is a lack of discipline. Of course, these are two secular definitions 
of the word discipline. But I believe they're very helpful as we consider the title of godly discipline this afternoon. Paul takes us into this passage of scripture that we've just read. After he's given us that rich doctrinal passage about the incarnation, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came. And the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 2 are vital for us to understand who the Son of God is and what he was willing to do to win back the sinner. In this next section in verse 12 that we have read, have a look at the verse 12 with me, and look at that first word. It just says, wherefore, or some other translations write the word, therefore. And this word holds critical importance in this passage, as it causes us to look backwards at what has been written, because there's a link with what's about to be said. And what Paul is saying, he says, therefore, or because Christ came from heaven, and because Christ was obedient, because Christ was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, because Christ humbled himself and died and was buried and rose again and now has ascended and has completed the work, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, because of all this, wherefore, therefore, it should change how you live. In light of what Christ has done for you, it should affect every moment of every day. We should be living lives of gratitude. And Paul says, wherefore, because of what Christ has done, my beloved, you need to listen to me. This should change how you live. You see, brothers and sisters, it's all well and good. Understanding the doctrine of Scripture. And what we have read and what we looked at there before Christmas, when we read that little passage, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal. But as we read through that lovely, rich, doctrinal passage, it's so important and it reminds us it's so important to understand the doctrine of Christology, the study of Christ. But you can have a good understanding of all the doctrine in Scripture. In fact, you could go to every Bible college course under the sun and you could get all your qualifications and you could understand biblical doctrine better than everybody else. But an understanding of biblical doctrine must lead to Judah. And what's happening in this passage today is Paul is saying because of this wonderful biblical doctrine that Christ condescended and came to this earth, because we've learned so much about Christ, it should change how we live. Dr. David Jeremiah puts it this way. He says, the truth is, as Christians, we do what we do because we know what we know. We do what we do because we know what we know. And Paul here is going to tell us what we should do in response to knowing what Christ has done. He says, look at verse 12 again, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye always obey, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Paul says, when I was with you, it was great to see how you lived for the Lord. And you were doing things right. But now that I'm away, you need to continue to live right, considering what the Lord has done. Remember earlier in the chapter in verse 5, Paul has commanded the believers in Philippi to have the mind of Christ. And as Paul writes, remember he's sitting in the prison cell, and had Paul been present, that may have motivated these believers to live in biblical obedience, but Paul is saying to them, there's a higher authority, 
There's someone above me. Me being present in your church in Philippi shouldn't mean that you live for the Lord. There's a higher authority and you need godly discipline and you need to look at the example set by Christ and he is your redeemer and you ought to live for him. Paul says, I'm not to be your motivation. Christ should be. You see, living for Christ is what gave Paul his own personal motivation. The love of Christ towards a sinner like himself was the great impelling, compelling, and propelling force in Paul's life. So that every word he spoke, and every step he took, and every act he performed was evaluated in light of his motive. I want to have the mind of Christ. I wonder, dear believer, has that been your experience in the past week? Uh, was that your life's attitude? Every word I speak, every step I took, Every act I did was it motivated by me wanting to have the mind of Christ, drawing closer to Him. And Paul says to the Philippians, in my absence, it should be Christ who is your great motivation to live disciplined, holy lives. Here's the teaching point, Pete. It's not that we need to be independent of one another as the body of Christ, because we've learned already in this epistle, that's not what Paul's teaching. He's speaking about unity of love and dependence on one another as the church of God and how important it is to meet together. The end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 all about the unity among the saints. But Paul's teaching point here in verse 12 is this, the centre of the gravity of our faith and how we live in an outward sense to the world around us must be dependent on Christ alone and motivated by Christ alone. Because all around us changes, including people, but he never changes. All changes and he never changes. You see, you can be dependent on your wife's faith. If it's stronger than yours, you can be dependent on them. Or you could be dependent on your husband's living in the home. And because you know he's a strong Christian, you depend on his decisions and his leading, rather than ultimately depending on God. Now those two things aren't wrong in themselves, but what they are is it's, it's an expense of relying on the Lord wholly. You, you, you could even depend on the church's reputation. Here at Grange, we've always believed the truth. And we stand in the word of God and, and we stand in the gospel of God and maybe somehow you put your pillow, your head in that pillow of faith and you rest. But if I really ask you this, what would happen if these four walls and the people here who really are the church of Jesus Christ were dispersed and gone overnight and there was no Grange Baptist, where would your faith be? How would you be identified to the world around you? What would your witness be? People sometimes think, you know, that when there's no pastor, the work can't go on. I think this is an error. I don't think this is an error that this particular fellowship has because you were busy before I came. Praise the Lord for that. But there's many fellowships and when the pastor's not there or there's not someone to lead the work, the work just goes, but it stops. I think this is the error that we see here in Philippians. That they thought that this one man, Paul, would do everything. And Paul says, when I'm absent, you need to keep going. You need to keep running. You need to keep serving. Because your identity isn't in me, it's in Christ. In other churches, we can see all around the scenes when a great personality has founded them. Or, or, or the person that the all gather to listen to dies and passes on 
and the work depletes and diminishes because they're looking to a man. I'm pleading with you, don't do that. Always in your life, look to the Lord and not a man. As individuals, we must look to the Lord. As an assembly together and as, the, as this local church, we must look to the Lord. And the Lord only. Now what I want to do in the remaining time today is I want to pull out two teaching points that Paul sets out in Philippians verses, chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Just two teaching points. And we're going slow through these because I think they're important. And the first is this. There's a purpose to achieve. Work on There's a purpose to achieve. Look at verse 12 again. It says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I have heard this verse grossly misinterpreted in the past by some Christians who say, Well, what living as a Christian means to you might mean something different to me. After all, Paul says we need to work it out for ourselves. Work out your own salvation. This is totally wrong and a very poor exegesis of this verse. Very poor. So I want you to listen carefully as we flesh this little phrase out. There's a young man in this fellowship and he told me that one of his presents that he got for Christmas was a pull-up bar. And if he wants his muscles to grow, He's going to have to work on it. And that's the idea found in the text here. We need to think about working out. We need to think about training, athletics and sport. And of course the key to being fit is discipline. And of course the key key here, and it's important that as you look at this, that the burden in Paul's heart is this, as he continues his letter to these believers in Philippi, is he's going to hold them responsible to discipline their own moral character until it falls in line with the mind of Christ, which he has so fervently described in the verses before. Now, Paul, let me make this clear, Paul is not advocating a gospel of works here. The text does not say, work for your salvation, no. And it doesn't say, work towards your salvation, no. It doesn't say work at your salvation, no. It says work out your salvation. And no one can work out their salvation until God has already worked it in. Once you're saved, you're saved for time and eternity. That's it. That day that you bowed the knee and placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and asked him for forgiveness for your sin and bowed and thanked him for dying on the cross for you, you were saved that day for time and eternity and nothing can change that. Praise the Lord. But we've got to remember that Paul, we've got to remember here, you see, that Paul is writing to the saints. We learned that in chapter 1 and verse 1. So he's referring to the aspect of salvation in this verse 12 that we call sanctification. Learning to live a life that is pleasing to God. And the words work out is a great word that speaks of our responsibility. This word would be used, for instance, in speaking in speaking of a student who was working out a problem in maths. And he carries the problem through various stages of its solution until it comes to its proper conclusion. So this word, work out, it carries that meaning of work to full completion. And in Paul's day, it was also used to speak about working in a man. You know, when I was preparing this message, I came across this illustration. I thought it was a very good way of explaining that thought of working out being in a mine. We could liken our salvation to a gift of a gold mine. 
And if someone were to give you a gold mine of incalculable worth, you would have a great treasure. But the gold wouldn't be of any use to you unless you worked it out of the mine. We've entered into a salvation that is a mine that is full of gold, and it's ours to enjoy and experience. You know, on the 21st of March in 1947, police received a phone tip that a man had died inside a boarded-up house. Unstable, or unable to get through the front door, they entered the house through the second-story second window. And inside they found the corpse of Homer Collier. Uh, and it was on a bed, clutching the 22nd of February 1912 issue of the Jewish Morning Journal. Even though he'd been blind for many years. You see, Homer and his brother Langley uh, were sons of a respected New York doctor, and both had earned uh, college degrees. And when their father, Dr. Collier, had died, his two sons inherited the family home and they inherited the estate. The two sons, who were both bachelors, were left financially secure, but they lived in total seclusion. They boarded up the windows of their house and they padlocked the doors. And the police broke in that day and they found a house full of broken machinery and appliances and folded chairs and instruments and rags and assorted odds and, and ends and bundles of old newspapers. An enormous mountain of rubbish blocked the front door. And Langley's body was found buried beneath the pile of rubbish, some six feet away from where Homer had died. And the rubbish eventually removed from the house, tallied to more than 140 tons. The Colliers, they had an inheritance that was so, so, so significant. And it would have been sufficient for all the needs. But they led their lives in self-imposed poverty. I wonder in your salvation, dear Christian, are you like that? Are you spiritually rich? Yet living in spiritual poverty. We've been given a personal title deed to a heavenly mind. But many of us are not working at it. And we're not enjoying or experiencing all the wealth that our salvation has given us. The growth, the development, the maturity is not there. And Paul says, you're in Christ, so you need to be like Christ. Flesh in your faith, work out your salvation, exercise your faith in Christ, it'll draw you closer to Him. And before we move on, I want to very quickly note the reverence that we find in this verse as well. Look at verse 12 again. We must recognize this, for this is what it says Work out your own salvation with what? Fear and tremble. Now it's not fear and trembling that we might lose our salvation because we've already seen it. That will never happen. But rather, it's a godly fear. It's a dread of offending a holy God. And the word fear is phobos, which is the word for phobia. And the word trembling here is tromos, which is the word for tremor. And the words speak of reverence and a passion to please. And sadly today, there's very little fear of God among his people in the Western church. Even as believers, we have lost sight of God. No longer does his holiness overwhelm us. No longer does his majesty awe us. No longer does his greatness inspire us. The sacred things are treated with recklessness by his church. Now we need to hear the ancient Paul again found in the psalm, Fear the Lord, O ye saints. 
And how can he catch the heavenly song in Isaiah 6? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We're dealing with a holy God. Yes, he's a gracious God. Oh, yes. He saved your soul. He loves you. Oh, yes. But dear Christian, he is a holy God. And many a man of God has fallen before. Prostrate. I believe the church in the West has lost that vision. Completely lost that vision. If we want to see the Lord move in again, we need to fall prostrate before him again. With fear, with trembling. There's a purpose to achieve. We're to work out our salvation. But there's a power to receive. Worketh in is what we find. Look at verse 13. For there we read, for it is God which worketh in both, worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. For it is God that worketh in you, there's power to receive. Now, in verse 12, we see the human responsibility that we have. In verse 13, we can see the divine resources that are available to us. Dear brethren and sisters, this afternoon, God is working in you. Now, that's an amazing fact. God is working in you. We sometimes think it is no longer I that live but Christ that liveth in me. And the Spirit of the living God dwells in you. And God is working in you. And the emphasis in the Greek language in this verse is upon the word God. It is God that worketh in you. It's not just your own doing. You don't have to rely on your own strength. Thank God for that. For I have very little strength. And the Lord so often reminds me, if thou feel in the day of adversity, thy strength indeed is small, and it is. But isn't it wonderful to know as the child of God, that God is at work in each of us. That word worketh, the Greek word, is energo, and it means energy, and where he's not, where God's not only our holy companion, but, but he's in us, and the Lord of the galaxies, and the king of constellations, and the one who created the continents, and the one who carved the seabeds, and filled them with the sea, with the rains, and, and the God of the centuries and the ages, that God works in us. That is the God who sustains us. That is the God who saved us. He's the only one and true God, the creator of the universe, who spoke everything into existence. He dwells in you, dear child of God. That is the power, the energy that's working in you. There are two great needs in every Christian's life. There's the desire to do God's will. And the ability God gives us by his power to do his will. Paul tells us that God not only creates the desire, but he provides the ability to live for him by his spirit. And God must work in us before he can work through us. One weird being his commentary in these verses reminds us that God took 40 years, I would argue 80 years actually, because he was 40 years in the education in Egypt. And then 40 years, he took, God took Moses to the place where he could use him to lead the people of Israel. Moses tended the sheep for 40 years and God was working in him so that one day he might work through him. 
I wanted to realize that God is more interested in the workman than the work. Who I am is more important than what I do. What do I mean by that? Well, if the workman is what he ought to be, then he'll do the work he's ought to do. You get that? If the workman is what he ought to be, then he'll do the work he ought to do. And if a Christian is seeking to be a man or woman of God, they ought to be in character, they will naturally do the things they ought to do. I wonder, dear brother, dear sister, has God been working in you to make it right with a fellow believer? Well then, work it out. I wonder, has God been working in you to speak to that one seed? Well then, work it out. I wonder, has God been working in you to, to take away that temper? Or to have a bolder testimony in the workplace? A cleaner life? A deeper walk? Then will you not work it out? I wonder, do people look at you and say, God is at work in that man Albert Einstein years ago moved into a home in California. And as the story goes, apparently he lived in a modest and unpretentious home. And immediately after he moved into that house, it became an object of great interest. Not because of the house. People were driving past in their cars, they were walking past on foot, they stood outside. Why? Why all the interest? Because Albert Einstein, the great physicist, was working in that house. What attention he got. And what attention you and I should get to the fact that God is at work in us, both to will and to do his good pleasure, carrying out his eternal will. And as we close, there are two particular tools that God uses today by the power of his Spirit to work in us, and it's nothing new. So don't expect this to break the ordinary. It's nothing new. You know this already. In fact, this is elementary. The first tool that the Lord uses is his word. It's his word. Paul, when he was writing to the church of Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians 2 and 13, he said this, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because that ye received the word of God, which ye heard of, which ye heard of us. Ye received it not as the word of man, but as the, but as the word of truth. The word of God, which effectually worketh also in all you that believe. God's divine energy that worketh in you, it comes through his inspired word. The same word that spoke, <coughs> excuse me, the universe in the being can release divine power into our lives. But we have a responsibility to appreciate the word of God. We shouldn't read it and treat it like the words of men. For Paul said in that verse in Thessalonians, he says this, Ye received the word not as the word of men, but you received it as the word of God. We must appreciate that this word that's before us is not just any mere man speaking, it's the words of God. But we must not just appreciate God's word, we must appropriate God's word. What does that mean? It means we must receive it. You see, this means much more than just reading God's Word. It means much more than even just studying God's Word. It means to welcome it 
and it means to allow it to beat up our inner being and to work in us. God's truth is to the spiritual man what food is to the physical man. But for God to work in us through his work, it's not just that we appreciate it and that we appropriate it, but it also must be applied. We must apply God's word. We need to live it out. We need to work it out. That's the first tool that God gives us. The second tool is prayer. I've said a lot to you about prayer since arriving in range. And it's because I believe in prayer. And I believe that God hears my prayer. And I believe without prayer, I do things in my own strength. And I believe without prayer, I can't expect God to move in my life and in the life of this local church. And if you need any example of why I believe this, take time to read through the book of Acts over the next number of days. For the book of Acts makes it clear that prayer is the divinely ordained source of spiritual power. And the word of God and prayer go hand in hand. Unless the Christian takes time for prayer, God cannot work in him and through him. And in the Bible and in church history, the people who God used are the people who were found on their knees. Paul says to us today, child of God, work out your salvation and make use of the power that God has put in you and is working in you to fulfill his will according to his good pleasure. I will tell you, if you have a God-linked life, that doesn't mean that you need God halfway and he'll meet you halfway. It means that you give God your all and God will give his all to you. His power will be demonstrated to the world all around that he is working in you. For we are his workmanship, says Paul in Ephesians, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That word workmanship, it actually means poem. And we get poem uh, from it in our, we get that word poem in our English language, workmanship. And think of it, God is transposing a poem through your life and my life. And combining them together. And one day in glory he'll combine every child of God together in a great symphony, a poem of praise, if you like, to the glory of the divine creator who is worthy. And he's worthy of our lives now. I wonder, dear believer, have you been working out your salvation? Have you been working out what God's been working in? You know, I remember a couple of years ago, I was down in England at a meeting, at a youth meeting, I was just attending it, and I was speaking out. Roger Carswell was there, and he said that we can be a little bit like a computer. I've never forgotten this. And he said, as we read God's words, God works in us. It's like input on a computer. He says, as God works in us, he says, well, then we've got to work it out. He says, there's input and output. He says, you get the word in. He said, and then you get the word out. I have never forgotten that. So simple. But God works in us. And we ought to work it out. Dear brother and dear sister, are you living for God today? Are you walking daily with him? Are you living for him? Are you pleasing him? Are you working out? Are you living your salvation?
I trust you, Allah. 